This week, we're discussing the entire Lord of the Rings film trilogy, directed and co-written, of course, by Peter Jackson. To help us do this, we've brought in Steve Procopi from Ain't It Cool News and Kate Kulzik from the Televerse. It's going to be epic. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Hey, you're listening to Sound On Sight, the official podcast of soundonsight.org. My name is Simon Howell. I'm the, co- I'm the content editor over at Sound On Sight. I'm also joined, as ever, by Mr. Ricky D, general editor. Hello, everybody. And for the first time on the Sound On Sight podcast, TV editor Kate Kulzik. Hey, guys. And if I'm not mistaken, also for the first time on the Sound On Sight podcast, our special guest, Stephen Procopi, a.k.a. Capone of Ain't Cool News. Thank you for having me. It definitely is the first time. So Yeah, we had you on the Televerse to talk uh, right. TV horror, which was a lot of fun. And yeah. so we thought, hey, why not? For and... some of us, yeah. Not for all of us. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm still coping. I'll be fine. <laughs> I like to think it's also my first time on the show, if that's okay. <laughs> it's I, a new me. Yeah, every time is the first time. Uh, I just can't believe it's taken so long to get Kate on the show. But uh, thank you, Stephen, for coming on. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. So, uh, Simon. First time we're reviewing three movies in one segment. Kind of a little odd. I'm daunted. Where I mean, I, at least, let, just to be sure, I mean, I watched the extended editions to prepare for this podcast. I'd never watched them before. I did, basically did a block of, of 11 hours of viewing, and now I'm ready for an 11-hour talk spot. <laughs> Why haven't you watched them before? I'd, well, I'd seen the originals in theaters, but I just never had occasion to watch all that Lord of the Rings. Okay, so we should assume you're not a huge fan, because the first thing I did was I not only watched the movies as soon as it came out on DVD, but I watched them again and again and again when the extended edition came out. So I've seen the trilogy maybe, I would say to be fair, I've seen each movie at least six times. Yeah, at least six times. In in extended or original form? Well, because, I mean, I, 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 I watched every film at the theater twice, and then I watched each film before the next came out one more time on DVD. So it, it basically the first movie has an advantage. It has one more than two towers and two towers has one more viewing than return of the King. That right. Makes any sense. Okay. Yeah. Let, let, let's get our Tolkien bona fides out of the way. I read the Hobbit when I was a kid. I didn't like it enough or, or I guess it didn't leave enough of an impression that I read the Lord of the Rings books. I did see each film in theaters when they came out. I enjoyed them. And then I kind of put them aside until 
the last couple of weeks when I rolled out these extended editions. Kate, I know you've got some bona fides. <laughs> well, uh, my family, one of the first books we all either were read or read as children was The Hobbit. And that was, you know, followed in short succession by Lord of the Rings because you're just crazy, Simon. The Hobbit is an awesome book, especially if, as a kid. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I'm a, a rather significant Lord of the Rings fan. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I'll i just, I guess the only bona fide I'll do, uh, it was a, definitely event television for me going to see the, the, the films when they came out. And uh, we'd get like the whole family together and go see it together. And uh, we, I've seen each of the theatrical cuts once because uh, once you have the real version, which is the extended edition, uh, you don't need to see the other one, at least uh, from my fanboy perspective. Um, and so my, my uh, Lord of the Rings bona fides will be, I, I was that kid teaching herself Elvish in undergrad. So Simon, yeah. I think she called you crazy. <laughs> she, she did. It, it happens on, uh, it happens all the time. I'm used to it. And, and Steven, how about you? I, I, I think I, I wasn't that into, I'd never really read these books as a kid, although I read each of them in advance of each movie coming out. I mean, I read the Hobbit first and then I read, each book in the trilogy right before the movie came out uh, just to have some some context and some idea of what I was going to see. Uh, I, I enjoyed them quite thoroughly, although I, I maintain that uh, the Tolkien is, is not the best uh, at pacing <laughs> uh, and or even basic storytelling. So I appreciate the movies. I certainly appreciate the movie's ability, if for nothing else, just to have someone who loves and understands its material, but also has some sense of how a story gets put together in a, in a, you know, in a way that you don't fall asleep halfway through each chapter. And I mean, but it's so, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not a feverish Tolkien fan by any, I've never read any of the uh, supplemental materials that apparently is going into the, some parts of the Hobbit trilogy. Um, I'm fascinated by it to see what it reveals, but uh but beyond that, yeah, I'm just I've I've seen the movies many many times and uh, and uh, I've not revisited the book since I've seen the movies. So I've read each book once. Okay. So so one of us has read the book. Because no. I, I didn't read the book. No, two of two of us. I read Kate, the books. No, Kate and Steve. <laughs> no, Kate, Kate said her parents read the book to her. That's different. Well, and I've <laughs> read them since. Are you kidding me? Of course, I've read them since. <laughs> Hey, do you know how to read? Is that the problem? Uh, yeah, I, I eventually learned. I, uh, you know, I was, I was able to overcome that through the help of all sorts of <laughs> aids. <laughs> all right. Uh, so now, now that we've got our our Tolkien introductions out of the way, I guess that we got. There's no better idea than just to get into it. So we're going to hear a clip. <laughs> I don't know why it's funny. The prospect of hearing a clip from this uh, to introduce us, but I guess we may as well try. And we're going to come back and get right into her. Concerning hobbits. Hobbits have been living and farming in the four farthings of the Shire for many hundreds of years, quite content to ignore and be ignored by the world of the big folk. Middle-earth being, after all, full of strange creatures beyond count, hobbits must seem of little importance. Being neither renowned as great warriors, nor counted among the very wise. <laughs> Frodo! Someone at the door! In fact, 
It has been remarked by some that Hobbit's only real passion is for food. A rather unfair observation, as we have also developed a keen interest in the brewing of ales and the smoking of pipeweed. But where our hearts truly lie is in peace and quiet and good till death. For all hobbits share a love of things that grow. And yes, no doubt to others our ways seem quaint. <laughs> but today of all days, it is brought home to me. It is no bad thing to celebrate a simple life. Now, that was a clip from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. One of the three films we'll be discussing essentially as one giant entity on today's Sound on Sight. All three, of course, directed by Peter Jackson, who rose himself hobbit-like from humble beginnings up to the sort of blockbuster filmmaker he is now. Now, Rick, actually, maybe this is a good place to start. I assume you've been a fan of Peter Jackson for a very long time. Oh, yeah. Big time. I, I've been a fan of Peter Jackson since I first discovered Dead Alive at the video store, and I rented it based solely on the fact that I loved the uh, artwork on the VHS box. This is when I was like a young kid. And I remember going home and watching it with my friend Chris, and I actually puked watching that movie. And I thought it was like the most... I thought it was the most awesome thing. I like ran to school and like, oh my god, you guys have to see this movie. I actually vomited. And... Um, Funny story is uh, later on that year, my uh, one of my friends had uh, sort of like a little party at her cabin. And so it was basically me, two dudes, and like 15 girls. And I put on Dead Alive so we can all watch it because, I don't know, I'm like that, right? <laughs> and I, uh, I remember we went to the convenience store to like buy some like soda pop. And on the way back, we can hear the girls screaming from down the street while watching Dead Alive. So I've been a huge fan of Peter Jackson, and uh, I'll just quickly say that I think he was born to direct the Lord of the Rings trilogy because everything he did prior just prepared him for everything in this film, be it the supernatural elements in Frighteners or the fantasy elements in Heavenly Creatures or... You know, he was a go-to guy in New, Ze New Zealand. He started his effects company. It was just like everything in his career, every little baby step, was just to prepare him to do this movie. So he's awesome. I love him. Yeah, you 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 skipped out the part where he learned he he learned how to work with non-human actors and meet the feebles. Oh my god, that movie's awesome. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, now now I guess now that we've gotten Peter Jackson's bona fides out of the way, um what do you think separates Lord of the Rings from other sort of tentpole blockbusters that have come before and since? Well, um that's a tricky question. It's I think it came out at the right time because it was also the same time they were uh, making the Harry Potter films. So fantasy became like the mainstream. But I think uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he's basically regarded to, I think, like, and Kate can correct me because she's like, you know, a fan of the, uh, the series, like the actual books. But I think he's regarded by most readers as the leader of modern fantasy. And it just seems like, I would say, especially in the past like 20 years, if not more, Bookstores have expanded their like fantasy section that every time I go to like chapters or indigo, it's like all I see is fantasy. So it's like it's like fantasy just went from being uh, a cult genre to 
leading the mainstream. But I don't think it happened right away with Fellowship of the Ring because I recall when Fellowship came out, most people liked the film and it got pretty good reviews. But it wasn't until Two Towers came out that it was just like, this is something you have to see. Because a lot of people only started watching Fellowship of the Ring when it got released on DVD. And then they started slowly going to the cinemas to see the Two Towers. And once the Two Towers came out, you know, it was even greater once the Return of the King came out. And I think that's also one of the reasons why Return of the King possibly won Best Picture at the Oscars. Uh, it was just like, it was undeniable. Like, you had to give it to Return of the King. Because at that point in time, it was like everybody was in love with this movie. So if, if you if you didn't jump on the boat from, from the beginning, by the time Return of the King was released, like, it was just like, it was the thing to do. Like, you had to see this movie and you had to love it because it's fantastic. And I, I don't know anybody actually dislikes any one of these films, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Now, Kate, coming from the point of view of uh, of a book fanatic, I'm going to use that word, and I hope you won't be offended. Um, I mean, you, were you trepidatious when these when these films first came out, or were you excited? And did they immediately leave up, leave up to ah, did they immediately live up to your expectation, or do they need to be adjusted by the extended editions? Well, there are a few things that uh, I think were significant in preparing people for it. For, for these films. Uh, first things, I have a really incredibly strong memory of going to see, I think it was Chamber of Secrets, but it might have been Sorcerer's Stone, uh, the Harry Potter films with my, again, with my whole family, because we love our fantasy. Um, and, and leaving the theater and saying, okay, the trailer for Lord of the Rings was better than the entire film we just saw. So they did a really good job. Just the, the, the amount of craft that went into this film, uh, really set up in just a few glances at looking at, you know, the stills or the trailer for this, it really set people up to know the kind of respect that was being paid to the world and to the fans by extension. So that helps prepare. Also, there's this fabulous website, theonering.net, which had all sorts of uh, set reports and photos and their production videos. There's a really strong connection between the fans and the uh, the production if you wanted to find that online. So there was a lot of information about it, you know, leading up. And then just the fact of some of the casting, you know, Ian McKellen being cast as Gandalf, um, it, things like that really, you know, kind of set some of my fears at ease. And I, I didn't necessarily go in expecting the, to have as wonderful an experience as I did, a feeling utterly submersed in Middle Earth. I was, I, that was a surprise to me, but I went in, you know, hoping to have fun and figuring I probably would. I have actually a very different memory of the way that the, the, these films did upon release, Ricky. I, I recall it being a huge hit, the, the, the first film, Fellowship, and then just growing. And by the time we got to the Return of the King, it was, you know, like, like the Oscars often does. I felt, it felt like a Lifetime Achievement Award, but for the Lord of the Rings as a whole, as opposed to just for, you know, Return of the King. See, uh, funny, maybe, perhaps, I just remember all my movie friends wanting to see it, and everyone who was just like a casual moviegoer, they weren't really interested. They just waited for, the, for it to be released on DVD. And once they watched it on DVD and saw how good it was, they flocked out to the movie theater to see Two Towers. But perhaps, I mean, my memory's a little hazy. Now, Stephen, earlier yeah. you, you mentioned, because I, I feel like we barely dived into the films themselves yet at all. <laughs> Early, yeah. it's, it's so hard to just even approach them. Uh, earlier you mentioned that you thought that Tolkien's storytelling was a little sluggish. Yes. And uh, I, I'm wondering, I mean, and we're, we're talking about an, essentially an 11-hour film here. So I, I'm, I'm curious as to 
how much do you think Peter Jackson was able to, I guess, I guess fix that problem and how much of that is still there? I, I mean, I think that's probably his greatest achievement with these three films is, is one of the, I think, I think one of the reasons this trilogy is groundbreaking is it's, it's one of, it's one of the rare instances where, and a a fanatic for this story and for these books actually ended up making a movie. This was not, he is not a director for hire. He wanted to do this. He will be moved heaven and earth to make this happen. And, you know, and, and it somehow, you know, he created an entire special effects company to make it happen. Um, the, 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 there's, there's groundbreaking technology at work here. Uh, but he, but more importantly, he he knows these stories inside and out, and he somehow kind of knew the story that Tolkien was trying to tell, and he found a way to tell it that was far more interesting, I think, than the original books. And uh, and and basically, he just shot the books. I mean, that's what the extended editions reveal is that basically he just shot the books. Well, two of the three. Uh, yeah, true. But I mean, it, it, he it, well, the thing is. I'm actually, I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but I, it, in interviews I've done with with various people who are in this movie over the years, there's stuff we haven't seen that was shot that could feasibly show up, uh, or like flashback sequences that could easily show up in one of these Hobbit movies. Um, so, and I, you know, I don't know if I want to get too deep into that, but the thing is, I think he did. I actually think he did shoot just about everything in the books, and held on to some of it, um, but but more importantly, he, the, the pacing's unreal. Like the pacing of these is perfect. The battle sequences come at exactly the right moments. There's plenty of time for reflection and discussion and exposition. But he never forgets that people are here to see a fantasy action adventure film, and um, it, it's just that that to me that that's our greatest gift is that that that. Peter Jackson is so well versed in this universe that he found a way to make it infinitely more interesting. Now, see, because the reason I say he filmed two of the three is not based on the amount of material. Because yeah, that there actually I didn't buy the extended edition DVDs when they came out at first because I was certain that at the ten year anniversary there would be some like platinum edition that would have even more stuff, um, and then they stopped making them. So I was had to find them at a used. DVD store. Um, and I love all the extra material. That's great. Uh, my thing, the reason what I mean by that is that uh, as much as I do think the pacing for Fellowship is great and Return of the King, the, the way that he, they structure the battle sequence, you know, the Pelennor Fields sequences, I mean, it's a, it's amazing. That's like, what, a, it's got to be at least a half an hour, if not closer to a 45 minute fight sequence. And it's utterly compelling. It's fabulous. Especially upon rewatching uh, over the past week uh, the, these films, Two Towers has a lot of problems for me in pacing. Uh, especially when you look at this as a as a whole, as a you know one complete really long film, it's because there's a lot of padding in the Two Towers, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, now, some of this may come from my affinity for particularly Faramir, one of the characters that gets a complete character rewrite in the two towers is it's basically not the same character from the book. Um, but there, you know, with the extra things added in about, uh, Arwen and Aragorn, there's a fight sequence with the wargs in the middle of the two towers. Um, and there's also, uh, this, uh, this 
diversion of, of Frodo and Sam to go to Osgiliath with Faramir, that that whole chunk of the two towers could be completely cut out and nothing would change. Nobody, no, uh, you know, relationships are different. No, uh, no plot points are changed. And and when I was approaching it with that perspective, when I realized actually there's nothing is gained by having Aragorn, you know, seem like he dies only to not be dead 10 minutes later. I mean, nobody thinks he's dead. This is, you know, it's only the second movie. And the same thing with Faramir. Nobody actually thinks he's going to take the ring because that would be the end of the movie. And we know there's another one coming. So I think there actually are a lot of... You know, it, it, the two towers. As much as I love living in this world, it just feels way too long to me. It's always been the weakest of the three in my book. Yeah, I agree. Um, not not even remembering those nuances that you clearly do, but uh, no, it, it's always been. I mean, that's that's the walking movie, right? That's what Kevin Smith made fun of in Clerks too. Is it's, it's just even the trees are walking? Yeah. So no, it's it it it, it is it. it yeah, it is. It does feel a little bit padded, and, and certain parts certainly seem unnecessary. But upon reflection, yeah, the second one has always been the one that I've had the least interest in rewatching. You know, ha- ha- has has it occurred to anyone that Aaron Sorkin might be a huge Lord of the Rings fan? It's all walking and talking. Well, the the problem with the Two Towers is it has the biggest handicap because it's afflicted with the middle chapter syndrome. And I actually think that it might have been better if Peter Jackson had only done two films. So I'm totally in agreement with with you guys. I uh, actually think it's my least favorite. Uh, But, I mean, it was an inherent obstacle right from the start for the second episode of the trilogy uh, because it has no real beginning and has no real end. Now, you can argue that technically Fellowship doesn't really have an end, but I think you can watch Fellowship as a standalone film uh, even if you're not familiar with the original source material, and even if you're not aware that there's two movies that follow, and you can still really enjoy the movie. I think that can also somewhat be, be said about Return of the King, but the two towers are jam-packed between these two films, and that's its biggest curse. Watching these movies again, which honestly, re-watching them, I was surprised how little memory I had. I mean, par- partially it was because I'm, I'm watching the extended editions for the first time, and there's you know an hour and a half or two hours of material that's been added but I and I have a diff, and I had a difficult time distinguishing from what was new and what wasn't. But my experience watching these films is about seventy five percent awe and twenty five percent nitpicking, and <laughs> I'm 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 torn between these two uh, these two impulses to just be like, wow, this is so much. This is so much. This like this is one of the it just the the level of ambition and the in uh, and planning. And the thoroughness and excellence of execution is just mind-boggling if you stop to think about it for even a second, for almost any second of the movie. Uh, I think for, for that alone, it the, these movies have earned their place in film history forever and ever. Um, th- with that said, they're definitely not perfect. I have all the same issues with the two towers that Kate has. My, uh, the worst offender for me is actually the many, many scenes with uh, Merry and Pippin and the Ents. And just <laughs> establishing over and over and over that, yes, the ends are slow and do things slowly. Like, yes, I got it the first two times. I didn't need another six or seven scenes explaining that. It, it was kind of funny at first, but now it's getting to this meta level where you're just being annoying about it. Um, but and there's other things, too. Like, most of the Eowyn stuff is useless. As much as I like Miranda Otto and as much as I like that triumphant moment she gets late late in the in Return of the King... Um, that subplot didn't add anything. And and I was surprised, actually, by 
how little Liv Tyler is in these movies as well as as Arwen and how sort of unimportant she is most of the time as well. It's funny because as, as great as the series is, perhaps its biggest flaw is the director was so in love with the project. It was a passion project that he just decided to do everything. He made three big, long-ass movies. And that's why I, I wanted to kind of like review the series today and kind of examine how it stands the test of time, which I think it will. I mean, 30, 150 years from now, people are still going to think this movie is incredible. But again, the problem is, you know, in the second film, we, we have these situations and characters introduced in the first film, and all it does is it prepares us for the return of the king. So we all have problems with the two towers. But even with the return of the king, I mean, it also has its drawbacks. I mean, the movie pretty much opens up, I think, a little slow because Jackson has to reestablish all these characters. And then from there, it's a slow, steady buildup to the incredible climax. And then, of course, after the climax, we get an extra 20 minutes, which most people aren't fond of, which was what they call the multiple endings. So, so and it's weird because I love the trilogy, you know, and I love Peter Jackson. I love everyone in this film. Like, but at the same time, I kind of think it, it's like it's a no win situation. It's like at the same time, I can I can sit here with, with you guys and bitch about the fact that hey, it's too long. I think it could I think it would have been far superior if he had cut it down to two movies. But it's done. You can't change the past. So well, I don't. Let's move on. I don't know that two movies uh, is necessarily the the answer. Um, the the trouble is if you made this two films they would both be a little they would be too long i mean people already thought the 3 hours were too was too long and that's actually one of the things i really enjoy about these films i like epic storytelling i love gone with the wind and lawrence of arabia and dr Zhivago. i i i am in for uh, you know let's put more uh, intermissions into into films if it's going to be two and a half hours long it better earn that two and a half hours and then i'll then i'm happy to give it to it um but I, I think there's not quite there you know there's too much material for two, and then they felt like they needed to make the two towers as long as the other ones. And I feel like if you cut out the extraneous, if you if you didn't give as much stuff to Eowyn, that some of that felt repetitive after a while. I agree. I also love Miranda Otto in it. And I think there's a lot of really good material. I particularly enjoy the stuff at Edoras with, with um, Eowyn and Wormtongue and Eomer and Theoden, that, that sort of dynamic. It's great to see uh, uh, another turn for everyone's favorite uh, eyebrow, eyebrowless villain. Uh, that, that's a lot of fun. But if you didn't focus on her as much, then you wouldn't have to have as much Arwen stuff. The Arwen stuff I'd love to talk about because I think it is the single most confusing part of this entire thing. It doesn't make any sense why Arwen is dying because of the ring when nobody else <laughs> in the entirety of the continent is. It just it doesn't, there's never an explanation. But they. it seems like they uh, They felt like if they were going to introduce this badass chick, Eowyn, who I think is pretty badass, they needed to have a reason for Aragorn to not end up with her and so they wanted to have more Arwen but then the Arwen stuff isn't great um, and then because there was also other material in the middle they felt like they had to keep reminding you of what was going on with Merry and Pippin so then we get extra scenes with them that if there was less in the middle you wouldn't need um, and, and so I, I feel like that, that kind of all snowballed a bit but you know I, I don't know if you guys are going to agree but and I again I haven't read the book but for me that's why I think Fellowship is the best film uh, I think it does an excellent job in condensing the original source material into like that one script. Again, making it a standalone movie. It never feels choppy. It never feels uneven. It never feels rushed. And I even like, for example, 
uh, the background that is explained at the beginning of the movie. We get the voiceover and a prologue and um, just like being introduced to the hobbits, understanding the hobbits and the way they live because the central character of this movie is uh, Frodo and Sam. Those two characters are the key characters and are little hobbits. And I, I'm pretty sure like majority of people going into the movie, they're like, they think like the elf is cool, you know, like Degolas. Or I like your last. Sorry, I'm uh, mixing up my French here. Um, <laughs> or arrogance, cool. And so you really need to like find a way to to connect the audience to. Well, let's face it, the least cool characters of the movie. Uh, and I just want to say, like, the reason why this movie really worked for me from the beginning is because I had this weird thing where I. I don't know. I've always been a huge fan of guys like Tobey Maguire, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, and Elijah Wood. And longtime listeners of San Jose Podcast will know this because I've been raving about them forever. And uh, I was right because I remember saying that these dudes would be like huge in the future and everyone laughed at me. And what do you know? Elijah Wood becomes the central figure at the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's playing Batman, supposedly. And Tobey Maguire played Spider-Man. There's just something about Elijah Wood that I love. And I think he was the perfectly cast in this film and the whole movie technically sort of rides on his shoulders i mean yeah we could talk about howard shore's score and peter jackson's that direction but he really carries the movie like he's amazing uh, i love his gradual changes in frodo as he's transformed from like this carefree hobbit uh who's burdened with carrying the ring and then once we get to the second film he's like haunted and he's quickly becoming like he's like it's like eating him inside he's becoming more tired and like everything about him changes like his physicality uh the way the actor expresses himself uh like at his eyes like everything he's just amazing and um despite the fact that i'm not a huge fan of sam not not the character but the actor to play him i'm not sean astin but at least there is chemistry between the two and so for me, I think he's one of the unsung heroes. Honestly, especially on this watch of, of the trilogy, I, I just thought to myself, man, couldn't he have brought Mary along instead? <laughs> but then who would sing? Was Mary the one that sang in The Return of the King or is that... Um... That was Pippin. Yeah, it's it Billy Pippin, Boy. Right? Yeah. All right, Billy Boy. He's got a good voice. Yes. That's one of my favorite moments, actually. I love that. And that's a creation of uh, the filmmakers. And I believe Billy Boyd wrote the, at least the melody, if not the, the lyrics for that himself. And it's it's just a wonderful moment. And it's, again, it's like when we talked about, uh, or I guess I talked about, the Harry Potter films with uh, Josh and, and some guests back when the last Harry Potter film came out. Some of the most, uh, the best moments in that trilogy, or that, that series, I should say, not trilogy, of films are the ones where they took um, something that was inherently literary and made it inherently visual. And I think that sequence of his singing on uh, intercut with the the montage of the eating with, you know, compared to Faramir's charge, that's that's a moment that is purely uh, cinematic. You can't do that in a book, really. Yeah. And, and so I think it's, it's the little moments like that that are the most effective um, other than just the sense of literally diving into this world and just living in the book. If you're going to talk about effective cinematic moments in the series, I think that's that's one of the highlights. Mm -hmm. Since since we've cracked open the Pandora's box of the cast of these films, which is, you know, itself we could spend an entire podcast on. Uh, let, let, let's let's get into that. I, my One of my favorite things about watching this now, as opposed to when they were coming out in theaters, is there's so much more of the cast that I'm familiar with now than the last time I watched them and seeing people turn up like Brad Dourif, Christopher Lee, John Noble, 
et cetera, et cetera. Sean Bean, who just has the worst luck with getting killed. Um, <laughs> did, did you did you mention Brad Dourif? Yes, I did. I got Brad Dourif is like is possibly my favorite character actor of the last forty years. Does he not play the best villains? Like everything from Exorcist Three to his character in Lord of the Rings. I love that guy. And Chucky, don't forget Chucky. And Chucky, yes. <laughs> yeah, love that guy. You so, see, yeah, for for me, like whenever the whenever my attention was kind of flagging or it was getting to a slow bit, generally there was some other actor to pop up and be like, "Yes, I love you." <laughs> Steven, Steven, is there a character in a film that you're not fond of? God, that's a good question. I, I don't think so. I mean, I know you guys were kind of happened on Sean Astin a little bit, but uh, I, I actually think he does a great job in this. Um, I, I guess, you know, I, I got to admit that, uh, no, it, it's stri- it's purely like love. I, I was going to mention Christopher Lee um, basically doing like a gray-haired Dracula uh, <laughs> performance. I think he just, he's so much fun in this in this movie. And uh, I, actually, I, you know, I, I was going to bring up, uh, since you're talking about casting, is a uh, the uh, what, what's remind me as much as we were we were kind of downplaying uh, two towers. That's the film that opens with the flashback of Gollum, uh, right? No, that's the Return of the King. Two Towers opens with the Balrog fight with Gandalf. Oh yeah, okay. So okay, well the scene with the scene with Gollum is the one I wanted to talk about because I think that's a fascinating. That's one of my favorite scenes in that movie, and uh, because it essentially sets up something that I don't really think was in the book. Uh, and Kate, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I kind of think that third movie in a lot of ways is, is more the story of Gollum and, uh, and Frodo and not, not so much uh, uh, with, uh, I've forgotten his name, Sam. Uh, but the, the, he's one of the few, like those two characters, Gollum and Frodo are the two of the only characters that have a, sort of these dueling personalities and these conflicts that go sort of below the surface. Um, I mean, there's so many characters in the second and third film, especially that there's not a lot of opportunities to go below the surface, but I was really impressed uh, with what Andy Serkis brought to Gollum and, and in this, you know, obviously this groundbreaking uh, motion capture performance, but it, it it's real acting. I mean, there's no getting around it. It's, it's a genuine performance that goes beyond just voicing a, a CG character and um, but it also provides a depth uh, to that character and a depth to that that, that relationship and that uh, in a way conflict between those two characters that I just don't think was there in the book and that to me is where all the tension comes from that third movie especially. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've said this before but what's amazing to me about Andy Serkis is and I don't think any other actor on the planet can claim this right now is that he is a one-man school for a new kind of, of acting, a, a whole new sort of realm of acting that he yeah. is the master of. And, I mean, I mean, at, at least in terms of sort of lead performances, if you think about him in these films and, and Tintin and especially Rise of the Planet of the Apes, there's no one who can do motion capture acting better than he can. And he, and he's, he's pioneering his, his own field in a way, and that's just incredible. Well, you know, it's funny because at the start of the uh, the show, you asked us, um, I believe you asked us how this series changed forever the movie industry. And he's one reason why. And, of course, the special effects and the way they just pushed and pushed everything to make it almost pitch perfect in some moments. 
And also, I mean, the fact that uh, New Line Cinema actually like took such a giant risk in making the series. Like they invested, I believe, three hundred million dollars, and that was that was just for like the initial package deal of the three films. But that didn't even include publicity and marketing. I think like the overall pricing package was like five hundred million. That's a huge gamble for. Um, New Line Cinema. Well, and, I mean, and they were struggling it, at the time, so they bet the studio on these totally, films. Totally, and and uh, yeah, I mean, thankfully it paid off. But um, that, I mean, just I think what it did also is it just, like I said, it put fantasy into the mainstream, and you can also credit Harry Potter as well. But I mean, now we're getting like a HBO series like Game of Thrones. I'm not entirely sure if HBO would have invested so much money in Game of Thrones if it had not been for the Lord of the Rings success prior. Maybe. We don't know. I, I doubt really it. Do think, I seriously I doubt, it, doubt it, yes. Yeah. Um, I think we should just take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This is Soundsight, the official podcast of Soundsight.org. One does not simply walk into Mordor. Its black gates are guarded by more than just orcs. There is evil there that does not sleep. And the great eye is ever watchful. It is a barren wasteland, riddled with fire and ash and dust. The very air you breathe is a poisonous fume. Not with 10,000 men could you do this. It is folly. Have you heard nothing Lord Elrond has said? The ring must be destroyed. And I suppose you think you're the one to do it. And if we fail, what then? What happens when Sauron takes back what is his? I will be dead before I see the ring in the hands of an elf. So much No one trusts an elf. I will take the ring to Mordor.
You're back on Sound on Sight. That was another clip and some music from the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, I, I brought up the cast earlier, and I don't think we're nearly done talking about them because we haven't even gotten to most of the principles yet. And, you know, the, the IMDb trivia section is is a maze full of lies and misdirection a lot of the time. But I, I, I do find it fascinating, the, the, you know, the, the sort of the miracle of how these this trilogy was cast. Because I do feel like they got the right man and the right woman for each and every job for the most part. And the people that, that, were, that were sort of floated for some of these parts are just head-smacking. Like, even down to, I mean, we've already raved about Elijah Wood. Does anyone else have a really hard time imagining Jake Gyllenhaal in the part? In which part, <laughs> Sam? Yeah. Oh, God, that would be horrible. No, no, Frodo, No, right? uh, Frodo, sorry. Oh. I, could, I could see him as Frodo, but Elijah Wood's better. No, I, I no. I can't. Christopher Lee is just totally badass in this movie. Well, and not to mention a, a huge Tolkien nerd, and I'm sure very, very, very happy to be a part of this. Well, and also perfect casting because the thing with Sauron, uh, <laughs> the thing with Saruman, sorry, is he his power and the greatest part of his uh, magic and his ability comes from his voice. They always talk about the power of Saruman's voice, and so to cast someone with so, such distinctive and beautiful and gorgeous of a voice as Christopher Lee, someone who can so instantly command everyone's attention just by saying a word uh, is, is perfect and shows not only uh, it's, it's not only intelligent casting and there's some fun horror history with him and all the, like Steve said, like all his, his history is Dracula and all of that, but it shows uh, again, a respect and uh, intelligence towards the, the novels and the characterizations did really you break into my computer? Because I have one note for Christopher Lee, and it says voice. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I love it when he delivers that monologue, like, a new power is rising, it's victories at hand, leave none alive. Like, he's amazing. Amazing. And Ian yeah, McKellen. There, there's, no, there's no greater ham in the world than, than Christopher <laughs> Lee. Uh, but, I, I, but I think, uh, conversely, an, the other really important bit of casting for me is, is Viggo Mortensen. And, you know, if, if you look at, again, IMDb trivia, I don't know if it can be trusted or not, but apparently the role was offered or very nearly went to Russell Crowe, I, I assume based on his work in Gladiator, which, especially on this watch, I was just like, thank God that didn't actually, happen. Actually, if I remember correctly, he actually gave the part to Stuart Townsend. Oh, they, yes. Yeah, and, and then it just wasn't working. So, and I, and he doesn't even remotely seem to embody the physical... <laughs> requirements for that part but uh yeah I, that i can't imagine anyone but vigo yeah. more than that part what, what what i think the reason i think vigo is so great besides the fact that he's the right age supposed to townsend is especially even at the end of the trilogy where it should be this big victorious moment he always seems a little bit trepidatious about what's about what's to come and a little bit like what's happening is meant for someone else or it's too big for him. He'll, he'll rise to the occasion, but there's always that little bit of doubt. And I, I, I'm having a really difficult time imagining other actors having the sensitivity to pull that off. It's, it, it, it adds to the nobility of the character, like that's, that's supposed to be hidden, but that's how he shows it by kind of dialing it back a little bit. And it, it's a perfect, that's why I mean, like I think Russell Crowe or anybody else probably would have been the temptation would be to overplay it and, and play it heroically. And he never does that. Um, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's almost poetic the way he does it. Well, it, 
And uh, he's a very thoughtful actor, but he only took the movie, first of all, because his son was a big Lord of the Rings fan and said, what, you get, yes, you have to be Aragorn, are you kidding me? Uh, And so that's why he took the movie uh, and uh, took the part. And then the other thing I wanted to mention, his first day of filming was the action sequence on Weathertop. And everybody else had had like months of stunt training and he hadn't had any because he had just gotten off a plane. So to just dive into the physicality of, of the role like that, just... It's astonishing. It's awesome. I also love Ian McKellen. I mean, I always love Ian McKellen, but I, you know, he opens like he starts off has this vo- sort of I, somewhat vulnerable, sympathetic figure. Like he's he's a wizard, but he's still an old man. And later uh, in the second movie, he becomes like this greater authority when he's transformed into uh, Gandalf the White. And I just love his transformation. Like, he's a completely different character in the second movie as opposed to the first movie. To the point where he's actually, in the third film, take, like taking part in the battle. And he's he's getting his hands dirty. He's got his staff. And he's, he's going hand-to-hand combat with, like, the hundreds and thousands of orcs that are invading the castle. Uh, which is amazing. But I also think it's funny rewatching it. There's a lot of scenes during the battle where you can clearly tell it's a stunt double because there's no way Ian McKellen can run that fast. So. <laughs> Well, the thing for me with Ian McKellen and Gandalf is, uh, and again, as a fan of these books, it's sort of like how a generation of children turned on Star Trek Next Generation and said, it's it's Professor X, because uh, Patrick Stewart was just born to be Professor X. Uh, for me, Ian McKellen was just always Gandalf in my head anyways. <laughs> and so when he was cast, it was just perfect. And, and he brings a shiftiness to Gandalf the Grey that I think is really important. And then, to, again, as you said, Ricky, the contrast that he brings when he's Gandalf the White works really well. Well, you know, you know what's funny is I was watching uh, the series with my nephew, and he kept saying, he's like, this, th- this is like Harry Potter. That guy is like Dumbledore. And like he's, he's <laughs> of course, talking about uh, Ian McKellen's... Um... Oh, my God, why did I forget his name all of a sudden? Gandalf. Gandalf. He's like, Gandalf is like Dumbledore. And... Uh, he, you know, this character reminds me of Dobby and like, and then like Brad Dourif's character reminds me of Snake. I was like, stop it! <laughs> stop it! Yeah. yeah, have respect for your elders, Harry Potter fans. Lord of the Rings came first. They're both, they're both great. We can love both of them. But yes. <laughs> is, is there anyone else in the cast we pe- people feel like pipping out? I, I had a question, actually, which uh, ties into the cast. Now, from my understanding, like uh, this, um, I guess the question is is, is uh, for either Stephen or Kate because it's about the adaptation. From my understanding, uh, there really isn't a romance in like the novel, so like I think the role of Arwen was expanded to enhance their romantic angle in the movie. Is that yeah? It's true. Both Arwen and Eowyn Ao- does fight the Witch King, but she never actually interacts with Aragorn. She like hands him a cup once, and same thing <laughs> with with Arwen. So the Arwen is hugely, uh, her role is hugely increased. I actually am a big fan of the way they increase her role in Fellowship. There, that was actually a different elf who came and saved Frodo and did that. So I thought that made sense. But and I and I think that one of the issues with this this series actually is they took again quote uh, Big Red podcast. They do have a lady problem, and I think it's a significant one. Um, I think that what they do with Eowyn works really well but unfortunately the i wanted to have more arwen but it just didn't make any sense <laughs> every time she showed up i was like yes i love uh, i enjoyed Liv tyler i love the character um but why are they having her say such 
stupid things yeah. with her. And, and again, I would also, we were talking about cast, uh, Hugo Weaving, and we got to give some love to Kate Blanchett, who just that opening narration is just gorgeous and perfect. I, I love her in this, but uh, I do think there is a bit of a lady problem here. I, I, I love Kate Blanchett in this. She's really only in the first one all that much, to be honest, but it, she gets one of the two great creepy scenes of, of the trilogy, both of which I think are in Fellowship. Uh, making Fellowship easily the scariest of the three films, I think. Uh, when she loves, she loves uh, okay, but you know, it, but for my mind, there's nothing scarier than a Ian Holm, who we haven't even mentioned yet, uh, getting his golem on with the teeth, oh, which right. I remember just, which I remember being like pant shittingly scary when I saw it in the theater. Did you just say getting his golem on? That's awesome. <laughs> yes, and that, and and of course the moment when uh, when. Uh, Kate Blanchett's character gets gets a little bit of ring power temptation as well, and we get all those inverted colors. Very creepy, and that's of course when Peter Jackson's horror experience comes in handy, and really, you know, and he gets to show that off a little bit. Yeah, um, I guess like uh, I'm, I feel like not too many people are, are fans of uh, Legolas and uh, Gimli, and I really uh, like these two characters because I think one thing that Peter Jackson also does is he adds like. I think a much needed like dose of humor throughout the whole entire film, but he never overdoes it. And I think, you know, you talk about casting, it's like they did, they, they did the job so well in casting, not so much that the actor fits the role perfectly, but the actor has such great chemistry with the, you know, other actor to the character who he's going to spend the majority of time with tr- throughout the whole entire series. In this case, it's uh, Gimli and Legolas and, I know. I just love the banter between the two of them, and I think the biggest laugh from the movie, uh, from the series, for me, comes in the third film when they arrive at the Black Gates, and Arag- Aragon basically chops off the head, uh, the ambassador's head, and then he, Ghibli delivers the line where he's like, "Well, I guess that concludes negotiations." Like it's it's such a, like dark moment in the movie, and he can deliver the line, and he can still make everyone in the audience laugh. So I really like the chemistry between those two characters. It's just unfortunate that they sold out Gimli's character to give him nothing but laughs. That's supposed to be a badass warrior, and he doesn't feel like it to me at all. Um, But again, that's probably just my book bias showing, but I I, I wish they had not made Gimli a source of all the comedy and taken away some of his bite. And the same thing is true with the Hobbits. They kind of made the Hobbits stupid, especially Merry and Pip, a lot stupider than they have any right to be um, just so that they could be funny. And I I wish they could do both. I'm going to make my issue with Legolas very simple. Orlando Bloom sucks. He's just, (laughs) he just sucks. Whoever first called him Orlando was dead on. He's just, I, I, he is one of the most useless actors of the last 10 years. Right. But he, he, he works as Legolas. I think, I don't think he's horrible in this movie at all. Yeah. I would agree with you in most, films but not in this one i think he's actually what I, what I liked about legolas is just that he's the only elf that does anything in this in these movies i mean the other ones just kind of stand around and talk and prophesize and but he is, is an elf of action so uh i, I was i was and i and i agree i was actually going to bring up the gimli legolas uh relationship too i think it's i think in a lot of ways it, it because they're so different and they find ways to complement each other and have fun with it that I think they're they're growing. We actually get to watch their friendship grow during the course of the films, and I think it actually works a little bit more than even the Sam and Frodo relationship does. Yeah, I agree, and that's I think my biggest problem with the Sam character. 
Uh, and also what Kate said about how I think they make the hobbits a little too stupid. I th- and, and Sam is clearly more intelligent than like Merry and Pippin. Um, you know, Kate, I, I don't agree with you. I think he was really brave and he was a great warrior. I mean, he survived all three films. He, he, he was, he saved so many people's lives. Like, yeah, they added a doses of humor to him, but I don't know. I just looked at it as the character trying to hide uh, his fear. And also he has like this troubled history with the elves. Uh, an example of that is as fun as the body count tally is and i and i enjoy that when you're in the battle of pelinor fields if you're keeping track of how many people you're killing you're not fighting hard enough so so that those are the kind of things that they do that where when you're watching it it's fun but it, it sells out the reality of the stakes of the situation and there are a few things like that where i just wish they hadn't gone for the laugh or, or him talking about a nervous system. Why does a dwarf know about a nervous system? I don't know, but I totally agree with, with you on that point. If I had to re-edit this film and like take out like two seconds, I would take out every single time they had the count. But I mean, there was other times where the humor worked with the dwarf. Yeah, I'd agree yeah. with that. The, Should we uh, talk about the action? Uh, we, we can do that. Uh, actually, this this ties into the action. We'll, we'll, we'll get, that, get to that in a moment. But earlier, you made a comment, Rick, about how uh, Gimli's a brave warrior. He survives all three films. That's actually one of my issues with these films is almost everyone <laughs> survives. And it, it and it's especially jarring when in the first movie, Boromir dies horribly. And then nobody else dies horribly in the next two films. Which Fred's kind of, finger dies. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I don't know. I, I feel like this, this movie, I, I kind of, I, I, I kind of wish they'd brought in Whedon for a rewrite where three quarters of the characters are wiped out by the end of the third movie. I, I enjoy thinking of uh, Lord of the Rings, the, the film, and sort of the book in this way too, but definitely watching the film. I used to have a problem with, especially, you know, you have everybody coming out of Moria and the orcs are all shooting a million arrows and none of them are hitting. And every arrow any of them shoot is a bullseye. Uh, I actually enjoy kind of thinking about it as a and d adventure. I enjoy my Dungeons and Dragons and all of our characters are like 20th level and all the orcs are first level and that's why they're so easy to kill and they never seem to hurt our heroes. But if you're trying to have any sort of realism to it, you're you're right. <laughs> yes. Uh but but anyway, that that's always just been a niggling issue with me. You wanted to talk about the action and I think we should do that. I think one of the other ways this series is groundbreaking and of course Peter Jackson's effects company Weta invented whole new technologies specifically for this film to to pull off especially the epic crowd sequences and i the way that for the most part the cg and human interaction in this film is almost seamless and considering what they're pulling off and how lucidly everything's being shot there's no shaky cam of any kind you've got a lot of like long sweeping takes it's an it's a hell of an achievement you know what one of the things i love about this movie is i feel like he doesn't overdo the CGI. He does use computer effects, but he also uses practical effects. He uses uh, uh, matte paintings. He uses, like, I mean, everything about it. It's just, it's, I, I think, I think it's, it's like, I always say a little too, a little too much of everything is no good for you, right? And that implies in a movie, too. Like, sometimes you gotta, like, hold back. And, I mean, the stunning climax of the two t- two towers, for example, the battle at Helm's Deep, like, it's, like, what, 30 minutes long? That is an incredible spectacle. Uh, I, and, and, again, I think in the book, that only occupies, like, maybe six pages or, like, a half a dozen pages or whatnot, and it becomes, like, the center, the centerpiece of the entire film. But I think the thing about the battle sequences is 
there's heart to them. Like it's actually heart wrenching. So it's not just like a spectacle, but he finds a way to balance the movie. So like you had this big, huge, like epic, like battle scene, but then he'll always come back to the characters. He never ever forgets the characters, and therefore you always care. So it's kind of true, Simon. Like none of the characters die in the in the series. Like none of the major major characters we root for, which might have had more of an impact on the viewers. But at least we're rooting for them. And throughout the whole entire series, when you're watching for the first time, you never know who's going to die. You always fear that someone's going to die. I mean, Sean Bean did die, for example. <laughs> That's the only example. One of the things I I get hung up on when it comes to any scale action sequence is geography i always want to kind of have a sense of where everybody is and it, whether they're in a building or on a battlefield or or, or anything and, and i this this to me was one of the per, it, to me it's what makes or breaks an action director uh if i can kind of get a sense of where everything is and where everybody is and who's sneaking up on who I'm a happy camper, and and in this movie, even with thousands of of uh, computer generated extras, yeah, I always had a sense of where people were busting through a wall or busting through a drawbridge or whatever, or coming up the side of a wall. And I just I loved it. I thought it I thought it was really well executed on that level, just on a like I said, a geographical level, just knowing where where not just the stakes, but 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 the the numbers of people in one part of a battlefield versus another, it really kind of excelled in that. Well, I really do think that one of the series greatest attributes is the pacing of the series. Like despite the fact that we can bitch and complain about the two towers, I think overall, if you look at it as one big long movie, the pacing is actually pretty balanced. And I think that's the thing about Jackson. He, he like his, his knack or his skill for, shifting perspectives both structurally and visually is just like there's no one else that can do this in fact uh simon and i had this great discussion uh, a few nights ago when we were like you know what simon if peter jackson didn't do lord of the rings who would do who, who would be the best director going like looking back in like when they started filming this movie back in like 1999 or whatever it was who would have been the only director that could have done it and simon what did you answer uh the only answer i could come up with is sam raimi because at the time, I think you said, I mean, Del Toro obviously almost directed The Hobbit, but at the time, I don't think he would have been able to handle anything of this scale, or at least it's tr- tricky to imagine. Whereas Sam Raimi, I feel like if you've got to take someone else, obviously you're never going to find someone who's as fanatical about the source material, but Raimi at least has a very similar background to, to Peter Jackson and kind of the same... He has the same ability to go straight up into horror or to do something more sentimental or something more spectacular. I feel like he's got the right CV, even though I don't think, I don't, I don't think he would have gotten the emotional balance quite, uh, quite as right, and obviously wouldn't have had the same love. But if you had to do it, he's about the only guy I can think of. Yeah, I totally agree, and I, 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 not, I don't know. It would be a completely different series, and I don't think it would be better. But I think he was the only director outside of Peter Jackson at the time who could have really pulled it off. And I think it's going back to the CV. Like you, you think of movies like army of darkness, but he's also the guy to kickstart the superhero like phenomenon. I mean, no one ever could, thought they could imagine seeing Spider-Man on the big screen until, until Sam Raimi actually did it. And I, I if I'm not mistaken, Sp- Spider-Man came out before X-Men, right? I think so. But anyways, not sure. Um, but yeah, but I, I think uh, Jackson does an, an amazing job balancing the tone, the pacing, the character development, the plot advancement, the visual spectacle of all three films. Um, so, God, I mean, I, I feel like this is just going to be a love fest on my part. So I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think we might want to you might want to keep an eye on Raimi's uh, Wizard of Oz prequel because I think that might be the closest he gets to uh, this kind of fantasy. Yeah, uh, it, it certainly it certainly seems like the scope is uh, and the scale is about yeah on par. I I think the other reason I thought about Raimi is because I would be curious to know what it would be like if you'd had someone handling this material who maybe was totally unfamiliar with it or at least didn't have quite the same reverence would, would they would they have made in fact a better paced trilogy that's what i'd be curious to know that that's that's the question because i mean like you know I, that was my i was praising peter jackson for being such a fan but the the truth is when you are that much of a fan of anything you get really precious about cutting things and about getting rid of things that that you think are gospel and that you can't you wouldn't dare remove something you just want to make it a little more entertaining and uh yeah, I mean, maybe a lesser fan would have uh, done a harder edit. You know, um, the best editors are the editors that are allowed to edit movies freely without the director hovering over them. Um, because that's true. Like, you do become... And it, it, this is this is to be said for any filmmaker. Like, uh, you know, you're making a movie. You see how much hard work goes into one little scene. It could be a five-minute shot. It could be a one-minute sequence. But you spend a whole entire day building a set, prepping the actors, like everything and so when it comes down to when you get into the editing room it's so hard to let go of even if it's one minute of footage because you you know how much hard work was into it and i was just watching the hollywood reporters directors roundtable and it was tarantino and ben affleck and ang lee etc etc and ben affleck he said he's like that's my advantage as a director because i used to be an actor and i would walk into the editing room and i would be totally confused as to why the director wouldn't cut down the scene or even cut out the scene. Because here I am watching a movie, and I'm in the movie, and I think it's boring. But the director doesn't want to cut it out because he puts so much hard work into it, and he's emotionally attached to it. And it's a mistake. And so that that could be said for any filmmaker. And I think the best filmmakers are the ones that can make that decision and take it out. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a practice of killing your babies, which is something that uh, they used to say all the time over in the, I guess, I think in the Whedon writing rooms and that's something that he brought to justin brought to avengers this this summer i think as well it's it's diff it's diff well it depends on how you felt about that movie but uh being able to be a fan of something and yet have a critical eye towards your pacing and what you're going to cut i think can be really tricky um i wanted to take us back to the action really quick because uh we we talked about the cg and it is amazing um i i i really like she love i think she love is terrifying so I, I, that's just me. I'm no, I'm the scaredy cat of the group. <laughs> um, but uh, I want to talk about. I think we need to give some love to the stunt guys. Oh yeah, and yes. and and the design. I mean, because I, I I'm that person who watches all who watch like the two hours or the two discs of special features about the bigotures and like all the the costuming and the amount of craft that went in that went into this you know this trilogy is astonishing to me. So each of these each of these different groups has a distinct fight style. Each of our leads has a distinct fight style. So even if you didn't see their face, you could have an idea of who's fighting just by the way that they're holding themselves and the way that, you know, if they're taking on two people, if they're taking it one-on-one. And and I think that really is another one of those things that makes the action work. And like you said, Steve, lets you know exactly what's going on. Because with so many different people, even like the armor design, as much as it's annoying that our leads never wear helmets, <laughs> and that's never an issue, uh, the the just the, the the attention to detail of what when you're looking at Pelinor Fields, 
Gondor versus Rohan versus the the Corsairs versus all these different groups, uh, they're instantly recognizable, and that's because of the attention to detail in the stunts, in the costuming, and every little inch of anything you see on screen. Yeah, that that's always the stuff that boggles my mind when I watch this. Uh, and we there's one of course very important person in all this that we mentioned briefly, but I think deserves more attention is uh, Howard Shore. I should say Toronto's own Howard Shore. Look at you. You just moved to Toronto like yesterday. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, but I, I, I wanted to specifically bring him up, not just because his his music is incredible throughout the entire trilogy, but also like Jackson, here's another guy who came up from genre film and came up from Humble Beginnings as Cronenberg's composer. And now and then, of course, you know, a, a couple decades later is working on the biggest films ever made. I, I always find stuff like that inspiring. Well, he's my favorite composer, and I raved about him time and time again on the podcast. I mean, I raved about him when we were talking about Scanners. Remember, Simon? I was like, yeah. the best part of this movie is Howard Shore's score. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it works for one specific reason, because it just complements the proceedings no matter what it is. And it it's just so heartfelt. Like, I think that's why the series works, period. It's not just this big, dumb action movie. Like, there is a lot of heart and passion, and everyone seems to, like, be doing what they're doing and spending, like, two or three years back-to-back filming these three movies because they want to be there. And uh, I think the score is a central character to the film. Like, I think it's so crucial. And because it really, like, sound is so important to really, like, have your audience have like I don't know how to explain this. Like this, you get this emotional connection, right? and it, he does. And also, like even the way they would mix in like Pippin song. Like I, I think Kate, you said that Billy Boyd actually wrote the song, but he has such a great voice. And there's little moments like that where they'll they'll mix in like these Celtic tunes into a score. It's fantastic. I mean, I could talk forever about this score uh, and Howard Shore and uh, all sorts of. I for me, I think one of the top five individual achievements and contributions to this entire project is Howard Shore's score, and it's it's similar to what what uh, Steve said earlier about always knowing the action, the geography of everything. You get that in this film or in these films through the music, the the design of the Shire. Uh, and even just because uh, you know I'm a geek, I get into the fact that in the uh, in the Shire, the, it's a violin, a fiddle kind of melody, but it's slightly sharp. Like the all the strings have been tuned up, like a quarter tone or just a, just a slight amount. So if like if I, I can play that on my violin, but it doesn't sound quite right because it needs to be just that little bit sharp because these are going to be these aren't going to be people who have Stradivariuses who have these are going to be people who have a fiddle that's been sitting on the wall for a while and might you know it's it's not going to be at you know standard United States of America 440 442 tuning and then you can contrast that with with the Rohan theme which is also fiddle but it's Swedish fiddle so you have a different sound to it and that one's tuned down a slight bit and then you contrast that with Gondor which is horns and is this very sparse and very open thing each of these little like the amount of detail and thought that went into what kind of music would this culture have it just it, it makes just this whole world come alive. And actually, I guess if I had to pick one, the one that I'm actually probably most interested in in getting the sheet music for, so getting my grubby little hands on it so I could play it, is actually I love the music in the Shelob sequence. It's just, it's crazy and frenetic, and it works so great. Uh, Sorry, Steve, do you want to talk about any of this stuff? I knew we could could count on Kate for some quality music nerdery. (laughs) I have no idea what she just said. but uh, (laughs) um, It's like you might as well speak in 
Aramaic. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, he won Oscars for two of the three scores on these movies, so it's it's not an accident that we're talking about it. Um, um, no, I don't know if I have much to add. To be honest, I, I you know, it's funny. I do remember that that. Uh, that she loved sequence actually being like loving the music in that. And, and just love it. I do. I, I echo what you said. I do love that sequence mainly because I know that that's Peter Jackson directing the, the missing. Well, at the time it was him directing the missing like spider pit sequence from King Kong, but uh, which then he did again on the King Kong DVD. But um, yeah, I, that's, that's a, that's a killer sequence. And, and the music is, is beautiful. And it's one of the few scores in the last 20 years that, you know, the minute I hear it, I I, I know what it is, and I, I'll admit I'm a little deficient when it comes to my modern score knowledge. But uh, but that one always, yeah, that one always just pops right into my head, and and I know always know what it is, and I'm so I'm, I'm incredibly excited to see what he comes up with for the Hobbit. So it also it it har- it harkens back to me, just uh, like there are certain scores, uh, and it epic filmmaking like these these other films that I mentioned. That's where you see some of it very. And yes, again, it's a love of orchestral score, but there are a few that where as soon as I hear the music, I just have a rush of emotion and I'm in the, I can see the movie in my head. Lawrence of Arabia is one of them. The, the, uh, the diff- there's two main themes there, but then the, or the Terra theme from Gone with the Wind is another one where it's just, it's, it's huge, big storytelling and they're not ashamed to just go big with it. And that's. You know, this is another one where I love, which I love for the same reason. You know, it's so funny. It's so true. I was just watching the movie Hitchcock. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but there's this one scene. There's this one scene. Okay, you've seen it, Steven. So you know, the, you know the scene in which they finally premiere um, Psycho for the first time, and Hitchcock is standing outside of the theater because he doesn't want to go in because he's so nervous. And he, it's the shower scene, and he hears the music. And as he hears the music, he's outside the theater, so he can't see the screen. He starts like reenacting. <laughs> the the motions of the actors because he can he could do it based on the music cues. It's f- a fantastic scene and a, and a pretty uh, decent movie. I don't know why it got such bad reviews. I just gotta say one last thing because I always talk about the look of a movie and uh, the cinematographer uh, Andrew Lesney, who's I believe from Australia. He did an incredible job in this film. Uh, just thinking about, for example, the dark mar- uh, the dark. Uh, marshes like that that scene there in uh with the ghosts um mm-hmm. the way he had to like shoot that scene uh it's not really easy to get that misty eerie unsettling reality and then somehow try to envision how they're going to put in these ghostly figures in uh post-production um he just i mean everything like the aerial shots uh i just can't imagine how hard it must have been for him to shoot this film especially when it came to like shooting those big epic battles with like hundreds and thousands of extras i'm not sure how many extras they actually used um but yeah by the way the uh the credits to this movie when you when you get to the return of the king the credits are almost as long as a whole entire series <laughs> it's insane like i like i watched this, the movie and i just let the credits roll while i was checking my emails and it was seriously like 25 minutes later the credits are still rolling if i remember correctly on the extended editions if you joined the official lord of the rings fan club you your name showed up in the credits like there was just pages of names it's too small to read on a regular TV, <laughs> if you could find a way to like blow it up, uh, then you could probably read your name. But I, because I had a friend who joined, and uh, 
and like just to see his name in the extended edition. So, in addition to whatever was there for the production, they had they had that nonsense as well. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm amazed actually that more series haven't taken that approach to just e- extreme excessive fandom and 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 fan service <laughs> because it's it's kind of brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you know, I uh, last thing I'll say is. Um, Look, I'm really looking forward to the Hobbit. I'm seeing it this week. I can't wait. Um, I don't want to walk into the Hobbit thinking it's going to be as good or better than, say, Return of the King or Fellowship, because then automatically I'm setting myself up for disappointment. So I'm actually anticipating it, not liking it. But um, I have a, I do have a question, probably for Stephen. You might know best. What exactly is the deal with Del Toro? Because I like, like, did he just walk away from production? Uh, like, what exactly happened? Because he was supposed to direct the Hobbit. I believe there were some either what was it some rights issues mm-hmm. uh, with the Hobbit, and it was just taking too long. Um, there may have been some financial issues as well, because uh, at New Line, he he basically like it was just eating up too much of his life, and he realized there was going to be this giant gap in his uh, like he the guy anyone who knows anything about him knows he's got fifty things going on at once at various stages of being done or being written or pre-production. And he just wanted to get another movie in the can. It had already been a couple of years since Hellboy 2. It still has. By the time Pacific Rim comes out, it's going to be this huge gap between films. And I mean, he's producing a lot. But um, yeah, I think he, he and he, he I believe he is still listed as a co-writer, a co-screenwriter on this. And, and I'm actually kind of curious uh, on the Hobbit films, how much of his influence is is there um it certainly doesn't appear to be darker than what we've seen out of this world yet but i i, I kind of wonder if we're gonna get there i, I don't think he will have, he'll have anything to do with the what this third film is going to turn into um but i think he just he just got impatient and, and anyone who knows him knows he he's he wants to be going he wants to be moving and he just felt like he was at a standstill okay yeah, I don't think he, he didn't. There was no, there's an, no animosity, absolutely none. Uh, Peter Jackson completely understood. Because the thing is, is New Line Cinema uh, produced the first three films, and The Hobbit is produced by Warner Brothers, right? Or is it Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema working? Warner Brothers, New Line is part of Warner Brothers. Okay. But yeah. I, I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about this at, at the top of the show, and I guess this is a good time to bring it up. I find the, the legacy of, of Lord of the Rings fascinating in terms of what's come since. And I, I feel like because these films were so successful, studios are now, for better and for worse, I think, more willing to give the inmates run of the asylum when it comes to sort of beloved properties. I mean, e- even if you think of, of things like Zack Snyder's Watchmen, for instance, where which was not a, a massively successful film, but pre-Lord of the Rings, I can't imagine uh, you know a comic nerd like Zack Snyder getting to do a completely faithful adaptation of of very tricky source material that's not particularly commercial. You know, a mostly I, I, faithful adaptation. Almost completely faithful, except for the, <laughs> come on. It, it, I like the original ending. Uh, oh, I don't think that would have worked on film. No, but that's not uh, that's, unfilmable. Yeah, but been, let's let's not. I don't want to have this discussion again. But <laughs> you, you don't want to have the Watchmen discussion with no, me on the show. <laughs> no, but uh, actually, in most ways, almost ludicrously faithful. Especially if you're watching the crazy extended edition with with the Curse of the Black Freighter. But anyway, um, the fact that that 
got made at all, you can credit directly to Lord of the Rings, and you can credit many more successful and probably some less successful films. And I, I, and I think that's good and bad, both in the sense of, yes, you're getting more faithful adaptations, you're getting sort of, in some cases, more interesting films. On the other hand, you've also realized at the same time that if you let the inmates run the asylum, there's really no end to what to what you can do, which is which is of course how we're getting three Hobbit movies, and we don't we don't know how that pans out yet. But you know, if it's if they're going to find a way to justify it, maybe they will. But it does feel like they've realized that if you can get the geek faithful in line, you've got a license to print money forever, and that's a that's a dangerous thing as well. There's good and bad in everything. I mean, we did get Orlando Bloom from the Lord of the Rings trilogy, right? Yes. <laughs> Just joking. Um, we'll be re- reviewing The Hobbit next week, uh, but it's the hour and a half mark, and we told Stephen we would have him on for an hour and a half. I want to take up his whole entire day. <laughs> That's true. So, uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, perhaps you could tell our listeners where they can find you online. Uh, com. And you're on Twitter? Uh, that would be Capone, A-I-C, at Capone, A-I-C-N. All right, and Kay, where can we find you online? At the Televerse on Twitter, or you can find Simon and I talking TV every week over at the Televerse podcast, which is also at Sound and Sight. All right, I run the Sound and Sight Twitter, so it's Sound and Sight. You can always find me at soundandsight.org, and uh, I'll let Simon take it out and let us know where he can be found online as well. Thank you for listening. Thank you guys for joining me. And I'm on Twitter at Sucker Howell, and like Kate said, I also co host the Televerse and Sorted Cinema and all kinds of other stuff. So, yes, join us next time. We will be discussing The Hobbit. It's going to be epic as well, although probably not this epic because come on. And uh, we're going to take it out with, with a clip and some music. Thank you for listening. This behind the world ahead. And there are many paths to tread through shadow. To the edge of night Until the stars are all alight Mist and shadow Cloud and shade Hope shine